I want you to turn in your Bibles as they go uh, to Romans chapter 8. And we're going to look at verses uh, 18 down through verse 27. Romans 8, 13 through 27, looking at that we are this truth, that we are secure in Christ. We are secure in Christ. I think in light of some of the prayer requests that I've shared with you this morning, it is very evident that we live in a fallen world. Uh, I think we can safely make this observation that life is difficult. All right, if you've been around for more than a year, you know that. Life is not always easy. Sometimes it can be unbelievably painful. And sometimes pain that is so deep and so severe that you can't even express what you're feeling in words. And sometimes you don't even know why you're hurting. It's the nature of life in a fallen world. We feel shaken. We feel insecure. As you come into this passage of Scripture, you find that the Apostle Paul is a realist. He doesn't live in the clouds. He's not, he's not one of those Christians that would annoy you. Okay? That everything's just so good that you're like, what planet are you from? Right? Paul's a realist. His feet are firmly planted in the world that you and I live in. He writes out of that world, prompted by the Spirit, to give encouragement to believers in seasons of struggle and suffering and pain and loss or persecution, whatever it may be. It's just part of the road that we live on. That is the truth and that is reality. So in verse 18, the Paul can say this. He says, I consider that our present sufferings. Okay, so he's able instantaneously to identify with the people to whom he writes. He knows that they're struggling. They lived in a difficult world. Caesar was bringing great persecution against the church. Those that placed faith in Christ experienced tremendous pressure. And Paul writes to them and says, I consider that our shared present sufferings, which means it was part of the experience that received this letter and this particular portion of Scripture addressed to a very specific topic, the security of believers in all things. The security of believers in all things, in all experiences. So Paul addresses a, a present suffering, the likely experience of many within this room this morning. Sometimes we are experiencing that pressure because of our faith in Christ, because of what that means morally in your workplace ethically in your workplace because of what that means as a Christian young person in a school where everybody around you isn't churchy and you get pressure for those convictions that you have. And you, look, you have to look to God for comfort. Jesus said to us, in this world, you will face trouble. It's part of the road. It's what Christ faced. We also may face trouble and suffering because of sinful choices made by ourselves or by others. It's another way that trouble comes into our life. Part of it is that we live in a fallen world. Many of us in this room were affected by a natural disaster last year named Sandy. Not Sandy Wagner, but Sandy the Storm, right? And why did that come? I live in a fallen world where wind blows and trees break and houses get ruined and some people died. That's the world I live in. That's reality. A world that groans, that is broken. Sometimes suffering is simply part of God's designed plan. I'm amazed as we're singing this morning, his wounds have paid my ransom. Because here's what we think. Suffering is purposeless. If I'm suffering, pray that I will get out of this suffering. Because if I get out of the suffering, I can serve God better. I don't know where we come up with that kind of thinking. That God intends for Christians to have the good life now. 
I would challenge you to read Paul's writings. Challenge you to read 2 Corinthians 4 and tell me that that's what God has in store for us now. Paul says, I write to you in our present sufferings. Sufferings that, according to the word of God, have a God-given purpose, aim, goal. And what he wants us to know is in the midst of those tribulations and struggles, those things that tear at your life, he wants you to know that he is there. And that because he is there, you are secure in Jesus Christ. Our sufferings differ in severity, in nature, in length, right? We, there are people that you think about their name and you think, oh, God, help them. Right? Because you know their story. You know what they're going through. But then you face your own circumstances and your own struggles and your own sufferings. And we all experience these seasons. The result is, three times in this passage, here's what the Bible says. It says, we groan. Uh, <laughs> right? Do you ever do, have you done that lately? When I typed the email, well, actually, when Lucas Cusimano called me on Tuesday to tell me that John's dad had passed away, I just, what? I, God, I want this to be over. I want the suffering to come to an end. I have a hope. I want that hope to come and to be experienced and fulfilled. So in this world, what happens? We groan. So three times in this text, it says creation groans, we groan, and the spirit groans. And the idea of that word is that we're reckoning with struggle and we're longing for things to be as they can be because we know how they are today. And that groaning is an expression of, oh, God. I'm 53 years old. I know you're all shocked by that statement. <laughs> no, good. I am probably 65% of the way through my life. Like, really? And I, my better days don't lie ahead. <laughs> right? I hear people, oh, the better days for our country lie ahead. Well, they don't lie ahead for me. I, I've had my good days. Helped a friend tile a floor the other night. Ten square feet. Next day, getting out of bed, what did I do? Oh, honey, oh. <laughs> What was I doing? I was groaning. I was reckoning with the fact that I am not the man I used to be. My body's changed. And I'm not old. I mean, I don't think I am. But I know, I know what it is to have diminishing capacities, to have strength that's fading, and to reckon with that, that pain that you're like, oh, no, not, not something. Not my other foot. Okay? I mean, what is Paul, Paul saying? Our suffering we're in this together as the people of God. Seven years ago, I got a phone call. That my nephew Kyle had been injured in an accident. Track host swung, hit a light pole 30 feet away, fell directly on top of his head. Quadriplegic. One year out of college... One year married, quadriplegic. I remember driving down 476 to go to see him in the hospital in a coma for two months. Groaning. Groaning. People will call and say, hey, I heard something happen. What happened? Tell them what happened. Groaning. What is that groaning? You know what that groaning is? 
that groaning is a longing to see my nephew delivered from his struggle. That's what it is. We groan. Creation groans. Spirit groans. When I walked up to uh, John Lombardi on his driveway on, I think it was Thursday, I stopped by to see him. First time I went to see him since his dad passed away. I groaned. Wept with him. Groaned. Longing for what? For a day when that doesn't happen anymore. Physical suffering, like what Tom and Cindy are going through with their dear son. Right? You hear it. I just, when Tom told me the other day, I just, I groaned in my heart. I just, God, I want to see that change. And it prompts from us prayer. And sometimes God intervenes and brings deliverance along the way. And we rejoice in that. But the question I have for you this morning is if the suffering goes on, if it continues, how do you respond to that? Do you let it shake your faith? Do you let it destroy your confidence in Christ? Or does the suffering have a purpose? Is it an opportunity for God to demonstrate that He is enough in those circumstances to be your hope and stay? Your high tower, your rock, your support. The danger in suffering is what? That, I think it's this. Some people, when they come to Christ, believe that, you know what? Life's going to be better now because I'm living better. And so God's going to do me better. Right? If my behavior improves, then my life should improve. My happiness should go up. My quotient, it should, should increase. The truth is that that's not the case because we are in this season of suffering. The danger is this. When life is hard, when the crushing burdens of relationships breaking press down on you, when the diagnosis is, in fact, cancer, or whatever it may be, when that comes, what happens? There is a tendency on the part of Christians to doubt something. And our tendency is to doubt that God is good. Right? Because we don't understand the big picture. We don't understand why God would let that pothole to form in the road of my life. Or allow that obstacle to detour my life in such a radical, unexpected way. I was dealing with a family member recently whose marriage is broken, separated. That breaks my heart. And this groaning. Why did I do that? Why did they do this? Brokenness, and, and, and it causes groaning. And, and in those seasons, we can wrestle with this idea, is God good? John the Baptist went through this, didn't he? As he sat in prison for telling the truth, for giving an ethical conclusion about an absolute in terms of morality, about marriage, what happened? He ended up in jail. From jail, what does he do? He's sitting there thinking about this. John the Baptist, the one prophesied from the book of Isaiah, the billboard for Jesus Christ, is sitting in prison. How does it affect him? Does it? The answer is yes. John sends someone to say, hey, go to Jesus and say, are you the Christ or am I looking for someone else? Because this doesn't look right. I'm in jail because I spoke about you. And Have you ever done that? Like I did the right thing and I lost my job? I have a dear friend. His name is Randy Cole. Worked for a corporation, which I probably shouldn't say the name of. Was put in a situation that expected of him something that he believed to be unethical. Everybody around him thought it was fine. He believed it to be unethical. He made a choice. Six months later, he lost a very good paying corporate job. To his credit, he said, God's going to provide. His first response. The God I know and love is good. He's going to meet her needs in this situation, is what he said to his dear wife. 
I want to look through this text real quickly, focusing on how suffering and future glory that will be revealed, how suffering and future glory that will be revealed secure us in times of trouble. Okay, how suffering in the present and the future glory that will be revealed coalesce together, are joined inseparably to make a difference in our lives as God's children. Listen to what the passage of Scripture says. And I've got to go back to verse 17 to set the tone, because you're going to wonder, what, why is he talking about suffering in verse 18? Verse 17, he says, Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, and co-heirs with Christ. That is to say, he is our older brother in this issue of suffering. He is our example. We are co-heirs with Christ. That puts us on, in, in a sense... And this is odd to say this, but in some sense, we're on footing with him, but we are not like him. But we are co-heirs with him in a glorious way. And that you just have to ponder because I can't explain that to you. We are co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his suffering in order that we may also share in his glory. And there's the connection. Suffering and glory bound together to secure believers in this life. Verse 18. Paul says. I consider. That our present suffering. Are not worthy. With, are not worth comparing. With the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits eagerly. In expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Now, what happens? He looks at creation. He says creation is looking forward to a day of recreation and release. And then Paul, as he says, what creation is waiting for, we are waiting for. Okay, what are we waiting for? We're waiting for a release. The sigh, the groan says what? I can't wait for this trouble to end. I can't wait for that to happen. That glorious hope that God promises to, his, to believers and to the world that he has made. Now, let me just work my way through this text with a few observations for you. Number one is this. The suffering of today and the glory of the future are in separable. Okay, to be a Christian does not mean that I only have glory. Paul obviously makes a, a tight connection between sufferings in this world and the glory of the future. They wed together in this sense, that the suffering prompts a groan that causes longing for future glory. That longing for future glory affects my life today. Do you see? Otherwise, it's purposeless and meaningless. So there's something about what's coming that is so glorious that it secures believers in present suffering so that we don't say, God, are you good? They are inseparably connected. Glory and groaning, therefore, are the normal part of Christian living. And folks, I'm going to tell you this. If you get this straight in your head, the next time your car breaks down, or the diagnosis is unfavorable, or the printer won't print like happened to me this morning, which makes me very relaxed. 
Okay, when that happens, if you tune your heart to realize that suffering and future glory are meant to be held in a constant tension. Here's the way the tension works. I live in an already. I am a child of God's. But I'm not in his house yet. It's like somebody adopting someone from China. They have the hope that I now have a home. I have a mom and dad, but I'm not there yet. That hope affects that child's every waking moment because they know for sure what's coming. And that's Christian experience, isn't it? Already adopted, not yet living in my father's house. Where do I live? I live in a broken world. I live in a world where there's suffering, where there's pain, where trees too fall down and where deer do jump in front of cars and die. That's the world I live in. Where stuff breaks and things go wrong. That's reality. But Paul says, don't ever forget this. That suffering and future glory are wed together to encourage your heart today. If you're at the hospital, and I heard this illustration used by someone, if you're at the hospital and you hear a female voice scream, okay, that can be good, and that can be bad, right? And the question is, what unit of the hospital are you in? What ward are you in? Because what ward you're in determines whether that's good or horrific. If you're on the oncology floor, it'll break your heart. If you're in the maternity ward as a man, it won't affect you at all. If you're there as a woman, you're like, oh. Hope that's over soon. What's the difference? That suffering is leading to what? Joy. A joy that will be so powerful that it will blind the memory of pain. I speak not from experience. I quote Jesus. John 16, 21. Here's what Jesus says. When a woman goes through the travail of childbirth, she is in pain. She suffers. She agonizes. But when... The child is born and she holds it. What happens? This is Jesus, not me. Okay? He says she forgets the pain. It's not worthy of comparing. I've never walked in a hospital, hospital to visit a new mom holding her new baby and had her say, PT, I've got to tell you about how difficult my delivery was. <laughs> it's never happened. Now, I know some deliveries are horrific, incredibly painful, and dangerous, life-threatening at times. I understand that. But what is Jesus talking about? He's talking about that normatively, that groaning of, of, of birthing, that pain, that suffering, leads to something that women go and do it again. Right? Which tells you what? They, the joy of that child has caused them to forget at some level. I don't understand this because I can't forget going to the dentist. Okay, but they, somehow they have compartmentalized that and they, they've weighed it out on the scale and said, you know what? That pain is worth this very great glory of a child. It's the exact illustration that God uses here. You choose that pain because you know what comes after it is glorious. That suffering and that glory are inseparable. Apart from adoption, you can't get a child any other way. Okay, in the old-fashioned world of the first century, there were no C-sections. Okay, there was one way to have a baby. I mean, you made that choice. You chose pain, but you chose joy. Do you see the connection? Glory and joy wedded together in the experience. And that's the way that Paul drives at this text here. Now, here's what I want to say to you. Much popular Christian te teaching in America tries to bring heaven on earth. I'm going to tell you this as your pastor. I believe that to be 
a mistake. I believe it to be a flawed theology that says that God wants you to have your best life now. God wants you to have your best life in heaven. And everything he allows you to go through here is what? It is preparation in suffering for a greater glory that will cause all suffering now to have been worth it. You see, folks, when an Olympian that wins a gold medal stands on the podium, having successfully achieved their goal through much pain and suffering, they don't stand there thinking of what it cost them. They rejoice in the glory of what has been attained and achieved through suffering. And that's the way the Christian life works. And so as you read through Scripture, you're going to find Paul saying in 2 Corinthians 12, he says, I glory in my infirmities. I'm not, I tried to get away from it. I asked God to remove it. It was suffering. How could it be good? I went to God. God, take it away. Take it away. Three times. Take it away. And he heard God speak. Paul, my strength in you will be perfected in your pain. What does Paul say? I will rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest on me. Now, folks, that, do you see the wedding, suffering and glory, a weight, a, a heaviness of what God is seeking to do and, and, and accomplish in your life? And I want to be clear on this. The God who can deliver you, and we pray for God to deliver according to his will. We don't demand it. Why? Because I know every healing is temporal. No physical healing is permanent. We still have death coming at us. We long for what? The greater healing. And God gives us taste of that along the way. Certainly you can look at the life of Christ. And what do you see? You see inbreakings of the kingdom. You see the dead raised. And when you see that, what do you say? Do that again. All right, you see 5,000 people fed from seven loaves and five fishes. And you say, do that again. Right? You, it's what you want, but you know, okay, already, but not yet. Jesus did not leave behind a perfect world. He left behind a struggling world where you and I live and where our faith is tested. A world in which suffering and the glory of tomorrow are inseparable. Secondly, our present suffering and future glory are incomparable. I'm using that word incomparable because I like that word. Simply incomparable. Okay? Now think about this. Verse 18, Paul says, I got out my calculator the other day, my spiritual calculator. And here's my conclusion, verse 18. He says, I consider, I have come to, and here's the idea of the word, it's logic, logic of my, where we get our word logic, okay? He says, I sat down and thought this through logically or rationally, and I've come to a conclusion. I consider, I believe, I am convinced, I am convicted. And what's the conviction? He says that our present sufferings are not worthy of comparing with the glory that would be revealed in us. Now, folks, what is Paul saying? Any healing you experience in this life is a foretaste. It is not the main thing. Don't over-realize heaven on earth. That healing here is what? It is a taste of what one day you will eat as a feast. Do you see? It is merely an appetizer to cause you to do what? In your suffering, to long for the truth, to want the day, to wait expectantly and eagerly that one day all of this pain will be done. And we will be taken into a realm that God has recreated for His glory where there is neither pain nor suffering nor tears. 
So what is Paul saying? The suffering you're experiencing today that you can't wait to get rid of, whether it's emotional, whether it's relational, whether it's physical, whether it's financial, whether it's career, no matter what it is, it, that, that sense of heaviness that you feel one day will not be worthy of mention. That's how good what is coming is. And how does Paul say it? It's not worth comparing to the glory that would be revealed where? In some translations say, and some translations say to or for us. That is, it is a glory of God. It is the power of God. The word Sandy and I were talking about this a little bit ago. The word glory means the weight or heaviness of God. The magnificence of sitting down and thinking through who God is and what he has prepared for us. And you just, you know, in the 60s, you would have looked, dude, that's heavy. Right? That's exactly what the word means. It's like, whoa, that's blowing my mind. Okay, it's, 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 it's just pondering who God is and how glorious the future is so that we realize what I'm experiencing today will not hold a candle. It'll be blown out in the glory of God's presence. And what is Paul doing? He's really erecting a scale here. It's not worth comparing. So what he, he says, take your present suffering. And folks, as I say this, please understand, I in no way aim to minimize your suffering. I just aim to redefine it. To redefine it. Because God who can get you out of it can also keep you in it. And often that brings him more glory. Okay, you only have to think of names. Eric Liddell. Okay, who lost his life after running in the Olympics and winning. Lost his life in China. And you never hear that part of the story. Haven't seen that movie yet, have you? Chariots of Fire, you've seen. You didn't know at the end of that movie that that man died in China under Mao Zedong. Willingly. Sent his wife back to Canada to preserve her and his three children so that he could die and suffer. Because something coming in the future was heavier, was more worthy, was more worthwhile than what he was experiencing. And that's not what we celebrate in America. Because when we pray in America, God, get me out of this problem. I want my good life today. I, just, I challenge you, read through what Paul says. The sufferings that we're facing are not worthy to be compared to the glory that one day we will embrace. Therefore, do the will of God. Stand in suffering for the glory of God. Why? Because you know that something glorious is coming. One of my favorite movies is Jacob the Liar. If you've ever, have any of you ever heard that movie? It's a, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Concentration camp type movie from the Holocaust. And there's this man that lies to save people's lives. He creates a story. He creates a, a false hope to keep people from committing suicide in the ghettos. And it works. Ultimately, it cost him his life. Powerful picture, isn't it? I remember someone that gave up his life so that I could have hope. His name is Jesus Christ. But he lived a true story. It's not a mirage. It's not something made up. It's the story of his love for every person in this room. His suffering by his wounds. You can be healed and forgiven. And you can have the hope that one day I will experience in his presence, number one, something I do not deserve. Number two, something that will cause all pain to be 
What was that? What, what happened? How did I feel? Dave, I'm thinking of you. I'm just thinking, how did I feel when my mom passed away? Frank, how did you feel when your wife, talking with you yesterday, you know you talked about with my friend Harry and I, he talked about being in heaven with her and enjoying worship in the presence of God. That's heavy. Like Frank, that's, whoa. What does it do? It takes the scale of suffering. It makes suffering seem it's the most significant in my life. And it shifts the balances. That's what Paul, I consider that the present sufferings will not deserve mention in the glory of God's presence. The suffering of today and the glory of tomorrow are inseparable, but our present suffering and future glory are incomparable. Here's the way Paul says it, and I'll close here. I'm actually not going to finish my sermon, okay? So you know that. That is possible, okay? 2 Corinthians 4 is where Paul gets his calculus. Okay, flip over there real quick, and we'll just end here. 2 Corinthians 4. Paul was a man who was a realist. He lived in a suffering, hurting world. He was part of that suffering, and so he can write from that perspective. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7, he says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay. How does clay respond when it's hit? Is it durable? No, you know what happens to clay? It breaks, it cracks, it fractures. And whatever's inside becomes visible. What is Paul saying? When they bring it on, Christ is seen. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not us. We are hard-pressed on every side, not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, not abandoned. We are struck down, not destroyed. We always carry about or around in our body the death of Christ. And what is it? Paul's not saying I'm dying all the time, but he says I live with a willingness to give up everything for the glory that's coming. That's it. And Paul was a rational man, folks. Please understand this. He was considered to be one of the brilliant scholars of the Jewish community in his time. Here's his calculus. Verse 10, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus might be revealed in what? In our body, which is to say what? Our suffering and how we respond to it before a watching world says whether God is heavy, glorious, capable, able, faithful, trustworthy. See, how you respond to suffering matters. Said it to someone this week. You need to get over yourself in this case. I've said it to myself recently too. You need to get over yourself. And let God be God. You need to be amazed at the power, the weight, the glory of God. So that you see this in a right perspective. We're all moving in a bad direction. Ultimately. Unless you know Christ, then you're moving in a good direction. Because this broken life will yield to eternal life. And that's good. And it will cause you to never even think about. We were talking about this year. We said, well, when you get to heaven, are you going to know your wife? Like, I'd like to know my wife. I'd like to worship beside her. Will you know her? Yes. Will it be different? Oh, yeah, it'll be different. Because all the things you love now, it's, we sang that this morning. You take a candle of light, and you bring the glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God into the picture, and the candle looks like it's out. 
And when God moves into the picture, that's what Paul's saying here. It is so unbelievably glorious that it starts to change how you respond to the pain and suffering of this life. Because you know the worst thing, folks, listen, the worst thing that can happen to you is you can die in your suffering. That's the worst thing. And that's the best thing. When your calculus has been switched, right? Look what Paul says then in verse 16. He says, therefore, we do not lose heart. Oh, Paul, how's life? Life stinks, but God is good. Life is painful. It's hard. It hurts. It's exactly what he just said. And I can take you to a more extended text in 2 Corinthians where he talks about the specific things. Beatings, left for dead, stoned. That was the life of the apostle Paul. What does he say? Ah, therefore, we do not lose heart. No, we're not bothered. <laughs> May God help us. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. The inner man is growing and hoping and longing. Here's what you find. Christians that are down the road in life have a more relaxed perspective about suffering than a 53-year-old does. My dad lays in the hospital when he gets these heart issues. He says to me, it's kind of slick. If I die, I'm in heaven. I'm like... I'm not there yet. I'm not ready to go. I want to be here. I got kids to raise and I want to see grandchildren. And yeah. Right? That's what I want. And then my John's 49-year-old dad dies. And you think, this, if you know Christ, on to glory, on to something that, that is changing how Paul sees it. Outwardly, we are wasting away. Inwardly, we are being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles. What have you complained about lately? Go read Paul's story. Oh, I challenge you. I challenge you if you think you should have your good life now. Go read Paul's story. Read his biography, his autobiography, when he talks about what he went through. And read the story of Christ, with whom we are co-heirs in suffering. It will change how you pray. It will change how you respond to suffering. Paul says, our light and momentary affliction, what, he's got the scale, he's got the glory of God and all that means, and it's just making all his troubles seem feather, dust on the scale. Our momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory that outweighs them all, that will cause them to seem like nothing. So we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Man, when troubles come, what do you tend to do? We tend to look at the immediate. How am I going to pay that bill if I lose my job? How am I going to, what if, if I get sick, how am I going to, but where do we fix our eyes? We fix our eyes on what is seen, not on what is unseen. What is Paul saying? You need to change your perspective. And folks, here's what I believe happens. Suffering will improve your thinking. Suffering will improve your vision. It helps you to see life better. Happens all the time. All the time. Someone has a heart attack at a young age and they survive. What do they say? Oh, you know what? My life's going to be different. I need to spend more time with my kids. That job isn't as important as I thought it was. In fact, it may be killing me. Right? And it, it, it changes what Paul's saying here. My understanding of the glory that's coming is so powerful that it makes this temporary suffering seem like nothing. May God, in his grace, help us to have our thinking changed. In your suffering, can I encourage you in this way? Turn your eyes 
upon Jesus. Look full, full in his wonderful face. Let him fill up your screen. That's the idea. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory, weight, and grace. There's a lady buried in Louisiana 150 years ago. And I read the recollections of, of, of a friend of hers in her diary about this lady. She said, this woman so-and-so died recently, a friend, and she left this simple wish in her directives for her funeral. She said, on my stone, write this, waiting. Waiting for the glory of the sons of God to be revealed. Now, folks, if you shift your focus and go to a position where you say, I am waiting, I am living, longing for the glory of God to be revealed, how you and I respond to suffering will change. Suffering's coming. It's part of life. It's part of life. May God help us to face it for his glory as we eagerly wait for the sons of God to be revealed. Father, if...